illuminating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome to the program. A fabulous Friday to you. Let me give out the phone number to call, 888-914-9149. You can also, of course, email the program, kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. You can find me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. So good to have you with me on this May the 5th, Friday, Cinco de Mayo. And we'll talk a little bit about Mexico later. Um, and, and from what I understand, now I'm no expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, a lot of people from Mexico say, ah, this isn't really the day. They, they, they celebrate it differently. So if you know something about that, give me a call, 888-914-9149. But we're going to talk about some stuff across the pond. And, uh, of course, big, big event tomorrow, the coronation of King Charles III. Millions upon millions will be watching. And I'm going to share with you the secret Catholic inside angle about what's really going to happen during the coronation. And there's some stuff that you will not see on TV, I guarantee it. And we'll explain that to you later as well. Plus, obviously, Britain used to be the world superpower. That has changed. It's now the United States. A lot of people think that the United States position on top of the heap will change in the coming decades, in the coming years. I'm not so sure about that. I've got some compelling reasons why the U.S. will remain the world superpower. So hopefully that's good news. And you can call in 888-914-9149. But because it's Friday, before we get into all of that, as you're grabbing your place on the phone lines, I want to share with you what producer Jim's been working on. It's the week that was on the K.O. Clark Show. Here's what you missed if you missed it. Jody is in Las Vegas. The Vegas Knights are there. Hi, Jody. They sure are. Hi, Kale. I love your show. Thank oh. you for everything you do. Love your knowledge. And, uh, oh, of course, thanks. even how you cleverly flip in sports into the fold. This guy, Zachary Morgan, he had a minor heart attack, and he found himself in the hospital. Very providentially, his wife, Anne, happened to be a nurse, and she helped to get him there, and he wound up, providentially, once again, at St. Joseph's Hospital. And I'm sure St. Joseph was interceding for this guy, not only to be healed of body and soul and mind. And anyways, a doctor came up to him at the hospital and asked this guy, Zachary Morgan, said, how, how many hours are you working every week? And he was saying, well, I work about somewhere between 80 to 110 hours a week. That's a lot. The doctor said, look, you're working 110 hours a week and you're gonna have six kids on the go. You have to pick one. You either pick the job or pick your family, but you really can't have both. And so Zach Morgan and his family, they moved to Mobile, Alabama, and he decided to sort of start up a new ministry called the Men of St. Joseph. He said, wow, I've been so consumed in work, even for a greater purpose. I was working literally for the church. I actually forgot that I had to do things like pray for my wife. That was a real turning point for him. And so, yeah, we've got to get our priorities straight. And I think St. Joseph was really a master of this. And he was He's known as the master of the interior life. The only survivor of a plane crash which happened 30 years ago. Her name is Annette Herfkins. And the book about her experience is called Turbulence, A True Story of Survival. She actually, the stuff that she was doing by instinct to survive in the jungle was actually exactly what you're supposed to do, according to the textbook. For example, she knew, number one, having the presence of mind, she said, I need water. If I'm gonna survive this ordeal in the jungle, 
I'm gonna need water and I need to make a plan. So she, she was kind of laying on the floor of the, of the jungle and she could see the wing of the plane, which was broken off. She said, man, there's some insulation in there. I can somehow crawl over and get it. I, I can use this. So she finally reached the wing, pulls out all this insulation and she was in such pain, she actually passed out. And when she woke up again, she, she kind of took this insulation and she made eight little balls of insulation. You say, well, how's that going to help? She just waited till it rained. And then the insulation soaked up all the rainwater and then she would have water when she needed. So she would just kind of soak, you know, just squeeze out a few drops from these insulation balls that she made. She would just take a sip every two hours. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Sir Alec Guinness, of course, played Obi-Wan Kenobi. So Sir Alec Guinness was making a movie about Father Brown. He was playing Father Brown. So he's dressed up as a priest. He's wearing clerics and he's just taking a walk. He's taking a break from filming. He's walking down the street. And then all of a sudden, a small child sees him and he thinks he's a real priest. So he, the, the kid runs up to him and starts talking to him. He grabs his hand and he just walks with him down the road. And he's kind of talking to him, Father, blah, 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 blah. Here's a quote from Sir Alec Guinness. He said, quote, Continuing my walk, I reflected that a church that could inspire such confidence in a child, making priests, even when unknown, so easily approachable, could not be as scheming or as creepy as it's so often made out to be. So I began to shake off my long-taught, long-absorbed prejudices against the Catholic Church. End quote. Not too long after that, the son converted to Catholicism, and so did Sir Alec Guinness and his wife. The whole family did. And he passed away, Sir Alec Guinness did, in the year 2000. So may he rest in peace. So he was able to defeat the dark side, the evil one. Not a fader, but of course, a real enemy uh, in the spiritual life. And so Obi-Wan Kenobi... He became Catholic. How about that? How about that? That was the week that was on the K.O. Clark Show. My thanks to producer Jim Shaper for pulling that together. We're going to post it on social media as well if you missed it. And as well, if you want to catch the full episodes from all of our programs this week, go to the Relevant Radio app, relevantradio.com. You can stream them. You can share them. You can download them. It's really important to get the word out that way. Once again, that phone number to call, 888 9149 it's a toll-free line to talk to me on the kale clark show if you're in the car if you're on your way home from work if you're at work still and you're listening so glad to have you aboard 888-914-9149 now tomorrow is a momentous day for many reasons there's going to be the walk to mary and that's of course uh going to end up at the shrine uh, to Our Lady of Champion. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing Marian shrine. Father Rocky is there. It's going to be a big celebration tonight. Uh, the Rosary with Drew Mariani is going to be live from Green Bay. Not really from Green Bay, but from... Uh, it's going to be broadcasting out of our Green Bay studios, but they're going to be live on site as they're getting ready for the Walk to Mary. So that's coming up later this evening, only here on Relevant Radio. So there's the Walk to Mary. There's also the Run to the Roses tomorrow, the Kentucky Derby is happening tomorrow, the fastest two minutes, the, the most fun two minutes really in sports. Uh, that's always intriguing. That's going to be tomorrow. So the Walk to Mary, the Run for the Roses. But most of the world's attention is going to be focused on England because millions upon millions all over the world, but especially in the UK and especially in the United States, are going to be watching the coronation of King 
Charles III. And I really want to give you some of the intriguing insights from a Catholic perspective. Now, of course, it's not going to be a Catholic ceremony. It is going to be a Christian ceremony, and it's going to take place in Westminster Abbey tomorrow. And, and what's what's so intriguing about this in our modern age is that this is a tradition. If you like tradition, you, you can watch Fiddler on the Roof, and you can also understand the fact that whatever you think of the British monarchy, this tradition of the coronation and, and, and in the cathedral for the kings, the queens of England, has been taking place in almost the same way for about a millennium, for almost a thousand years. And so, yes, they are uh, separated brethren. Uh, no, they're not part of the Catholic Church, although they used to be. But still, what's great about this is that tomorrow there will be a service, of course, not a Mass, it's not a Catholic Mass, but there will be an Anglican service and the Word of God will be proclaimed. There, There is going to be Scripture. There is going to be a homily. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I'm sure, will be preaching Justin Welby. And this goes back, again, almost a thousand years. It's a, it's a great spectacle. But what I want to point out to you is some things that are quite literally behind the curtain that you might miss that are not going to be shown on television in any way, shape, or form. It's totally private. So we'll get into that in just a second. But I do want to pray, and I think we should all pray for everybody who will be watching tomorrow, that somehow, that somehow they'll be touched by the scriptures that will be proclaimed, the powerful word of God that will be preached there. And really what's going on here, from a biblical perspective, is that the way that the queens and kings of England are crowned in Westminster Abbey, this really is sort of copying the way that the kings of Israel were coronated in the Old Testament and the way that they were anointed. Yes, King Charles is actually going to be anointed. We're going to get into him and what he thinks in just a second. But really, this is a, a pattern after the way that King Solomon uh, was coronated, the way that his successors, the Davidic kings of Israel, uh, were installed as king. And so that is, that is really amazing especially in light of the fact, as I said, that England is incredibly secular these days, and a lot of people want to do away completely or at least ignore uh, the Christian pa past of the UK. So we're, we'll talk about that in just a second, but, but I want to just mention really quickly the faith of King Charles himself. What is it? That's a big mystery. It's been a bit of an enigma, that's for sure, an enigma wrapped up in a mystery. He actually, before we, before we talk about that, he actually was is one of the few living links. There's maybe only a handful of people that were alive when the last coronation happened 70 years ago. 1953, King Charles' mother, Elizabeth II, was, uh, was uh, crowned on, the, on uh, this in 1953. So... He was four, four and a half years old, I think, at the time uh, King Charles was, and, and he was just kind of a fidgeting little kid, you know, maybe wasn't quite aware of what was going on, although I'm sure he was at a basic level. And now it's much different. Seventy years later, he is uh, very, very progressed in years. And so that's what's going to happen. A lot of people are asking, well, what is his faith? What does he really believe? A lot of people think that he's kind of a more of a new age kind of guy. Uh, 
he would probably, when pressed, self-identify as a, as a Christian. But he does tend to be a little bit more eclectic, maybe a little bit more postmodern, maybe a little bit more syncristic in in his view, syncretistic rather. And what does he really believe about this stuff? It's 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 an open question. It's an open question. Um, my brother-in-law Joe, really interesting. He he's uh, involved with the Canadian military. He's met King Charles on a couple of occasions in the past. He's actually had face-to-face conversations with him, and he's always come away very very impressed with him as as a man, his graciousness, his intelligence. And and I have to give Joe props because the boldness, the apostolic uh, verve, and, and just the the chutzpah that he has, because he actually presented. Uh, King Charles, the future king, he wasn't king at the time, but he gave him a copy of The Way, a collection of spiritual maxims, a great spiritual classic written by St. Jose Maria Escrivá, the founder of Opus Dei. And he, he, he accepted the gift very graciously, and, and, and they talked very briefly, and Joe explained to him that St. Jose Maria came to England uh, in the 1950s, and he actually had a very, very important spiritual moment in his life when he went to England. We'll talk about that in just a second, but it's one of those things where, you know, the prince had a little button on his desk. You get a few minutes with him. There are a lot of people he has to meet and greet, and then he kind of presses the button, and they whisk you off, and, and then it's it's kind of on to the next person, but I, I that, it's an incredible story that he gave him a copy of that, and who knows? Hopefully, let's pray that one day that uh, he reads that. He reads that, but just um, one little anecdote about St. Jose Maria in London. Uh, it was in 1958, August the 10th, when he was in London and he was trying to, you know, he was really concerned about spreading the word of Jesus Christ there in London and getting people online uh, with the Catholic faith. And he got what was called a, a locution from God. And that's where some of the saints this has happened to, where, where God speaks to you in not necessarily an audible voice, but an unmistakable voice. And, and Jesus really gave him a message there. And what was going on at the time on that day, August 10th, 1958, St. Jose Maria was looking at, he was kind of around the banking section of, of London. There were a lot of gleaming towers, just glistening, shimmering, the, the power, the wealth, obviously one of the financial capitals of the world, London, all the influence that's there. One of the crossroads of the world as well, very cosmopolitan, uh, very metropolitan, people from all over the world there. And, and, and for a moment, St. Jose Maria just was overwhelmed, and, and he thought, ah, man, this is, this is almost an impossible task. And he, and he later said this, quote, I somewhat lost my composure. I felt useless and powerless. I said to myself, Jose Maria, you can't do anything here. Without God, I could not even pull up a blade of grass from the ground. My whole miserable weakness was so apparent that I almost grew sad. And that is bad. Why should a son of God be sad? He can be weary, like a faithful donkey pulling a cart, but sad? Never. Sadness is evil. And then he said, suddenly in the middle of the street, where people from all corners of the world were crossing paths, I felt within me, in the depth of my heart, the motion of God's power. And this was the locution uh, that God gave him. He said, I felt him reassuring me, you can do nothing. But I can do everything. You are weakness, but I am strength. I shall be with you, and that will have an effect. 
We shall lead souls to happiness, to unity, to the way of salvation. In the city of London, we shall sow peace and happiness and abundance. End of quote. So uh, those words felt from, from the Lord in his soul. You can't do anything. It's true. <laughs> That's what Jesus says in the gospel. Without, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not even a little bit of good on a, super, on a supernatural plane. Without me, you can do nothing. Not just a little bit, but nothing. So you've got to be connected to the vine, first of all. But then number two, don't worry, because I am with you, and I can do everything. You might not be able to do anything, but I can do everything, and I will do it in and through you. And souls will find happiness. They'll find me. That seemed to be what the Lord was saying. Sowers of peace and joy. That's what we all have to be, really. And so... Uh, obviously, uh, London, England uh, as a whole was very, very uh, important to St. Jose Maria. But when, when it comes to the faith of, of King Charles, and, and hopefully he'll read that book, like I said, The Way, meditate on it. But a lot, of, a lot of the chatter concerning the coronation tomorrow has to do with whether or not he was going to accept the title that's given to kings, queens of England, defender of the faith. Because in the past, he said, I don't want that. I, I, I do not want to say those words. So we've got to take a little break right now. But when we, when we come back, I'm going to be explaining to you what he's going to do and what the, what the Catholic background of this really, really is. This is the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. And we'll be right back after this message. This is the Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program, 888 We're explaining the secret Catholic background of the coronation of King Charles tomorrow. Are you going to watch it? Are you interested? Or are you just like, I am so over it. I, 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 can't, I can't deal with it anymore, whether it's Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. I, I, just, I, just can't take, I just can't take the monarchy anymore. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to watch this at all. Or maybe you're totally into this. Maybe you think, wow, this is going to be a moment, a historical moment. I want to, I want to get up early, 4 a.m. Eastern, and, and, and take it in live, 888 Let me know what you think. But I, I wanted to explain really quickly this, this whole controversy around the title of the, of the, uh, the British monarch, Defender of the Faith. Now it's interesting because one of the things that that um, uh, Prince Charles at the time said in an interview that he did, and this was an interview that uh, he gave to a British journalist, and I've got his name right here. If you want to look it up, it, you might even be able to find this online. But um, ah, I'll, I'll dig it up later. I, I've, I've misplaced it, but. He, he had given a, an interview to, uh, to a British journalist some years ago, and he said, look, when, when I become king, oh, Jonathan Dimbleby, I just, just found it. Okay, Jonathan Dimbleby. Dimble, not Dimble me, but Dimbleby. How about that? Don't Dimble me, that's for sure. Anyways, Jonathan Dimbleby, uh, had, had, a journalist had, had interviewed Charles years ago, and he said, look, if I ever become king, I am not going to use this title, Defender of the Faith. In fact, I want to be called Defender of Faiths, plural. Defender of Faith in general. I want, kind of want to be more, 
more open about that because and maybe he was thinking, obviously, it's it's pretty eclectic in British society. There are people there of all kinds of different faith backgrounds and of no faith. And I, I sort of wanted, I, I'm guessing he was thinking I want to be a king for all people, but maybe it sort of maybe spoke to some relativism in his own mind. I don't know. I don't know the man, uh, what he was thinking about the absolute truth claims of Christianity. But a lot of people have been speculating leading up to the coronation. Is he going to accept this title? Is he going to take it or not? Well, as I understand, uh, apparently he is going to say it. Apparently he is going to say it. That's that's the, the latest I have heard because of the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury kind of controls this aspect of the coronation ceremony, and that's part of the deal and apparently he is going to say it after all. I guess we'll find out tomorrow. I guess we'll find out tomorrow. But I do want to get into this whole background because it actually has a Catholic background. It doesn't go back a thousand years. And, and these coronations have been happening at Westminster Abbey for almost a thousand years. It goes back to just before England broke away from the Catholic Church. Because at, during Reformation time, 16th century, King Henry VIII, before he apostatized, before he broke away from the church, he actually wrote a tract, a document, basically attacking Martin Luther and basically saying, hey, he is way, way off base here, defending the traditional Catholic faith. And it was basically a, a document which he, and whether he wrote it himself, I'm not sure, or whether his advisors wrote it for him, I don't know. But the Pope at the time was so impressed by King Henry VIII writing this document denouncing the views of Luther and his revolution that he named King Henry VIII Defender of the Faith. It was a title that was given to him. And so that's where it came from with respect to the British king. However, not long after that, did he really believe this stuff? Did he, did he really buy into the Catholic faith? Obviously not. When it, when it came down to brass tacks, he was willing to throw away his faith and to incredibly damage Christendom by breaking away from the Catholic Church, declaring himself to be the head of the Catholic, uh, the head of the Church in England, creating what's now known as the Anglican Church, because the Pope would not allow him to, would not annul his marriage to his lawfully wedded wife, so that he could marry his mistress Anne Boleyn, because he wanted a male heir, and his his wife couldn't give him one. So. Um, it didn't last very long, Emma's Defender of the Faith, but the title did. The title did. So that, that's why it was still held on uh, by the throne for all of these centuries. So it's pretty ironic when you think about it, because the Defender of the Faith in King Henry VIII turned out to be the enemy of the faith. Uh, and we, yesterday we celebrated the Feast of the Catholic Martyrs of England and Wales, some of the great, great martyrs of all time. And uh, St. Thomas More, of course, he has his own feast day, but we think about St. Edmund Campion, the brilliant Jesuit. Uh, absolutely unbelievable life story. One of my favorite saints. And, and so many uh, who still kept their allegiance to uh, the Church of Rome and were persecuted mercilessly for it and gave their lives. And so things are different now. Um, there's much more openness towards Catholicism, even on the part of the monarchy, of course, uh, in England. And Catholics, as well as Protestants, mourned uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. More, more on that in just a little bit. But this is actually going to be one of the most ecumenical coronations, if not the most ecumenical of all time. Uh, and the Catholic Church is going to have reps there. Uh, Cardinal Perlin, who is the Secretary of State of the Vatican, is going to be there. Uh, 
couple other key Catholic figures will be on hand as well. And we know, we talked about this yesterday, that Pope Francis donated uh, pieces of allegedly the true cross, which uh, were put in a new uh, cross of Wales that's going to be processed uh, down the aisle uh, towards the main altar in Westminster Abbey tomorrow. So all, all of that is kind of a, kind of a background here. But what, what I want to talk about is the secret ritual that you will not see on TV and what the background is. There's going to be an anointing of King Charles. And again, th this is something that, that echoes back to the times when England was Catholic. And we know that England was once known as Mary's Dowry. So we need to ask Our Lady's intercession that, that the Christians of England will be uh, reconciled in one body uh, with us in the Catholic Church. But what's going to happen is a ceremony of anointing and this is where the Archbishop of Canterbury is going to anoint King Charles. And this is 100% taken from the Old Testament. It's taken from the anointing of the kings of Israel, like Solomon. And it harkens back to a figure known as Zadok the priest. And in fact, there's even music that's made for this uh, by, of course, George Frederick Handel. Uh, you might uh, have heard his piece of music, Zadok the priest, that he wrote... Handel wrote, of course, Handel did the Messiah as well, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know that ultimately the true King of Kings is Jesus Christ. But the coronation of King George II in 1727, that was the occasion for George Frederick, Frederick Handel writing this piece of music called Zadok the Priest. And so what exactly is going to happen here? Well, you can read about it in the Bible if you want later. You can grab, grab your Bible. It's in 1 Kings, the first book of Kings, chapter 1. Maybe you can play that piece from Handel in the background as you're reading it. And what, what exactly is going on here? Well, Luke Coppin, uh, who writes for The Pillar, actually gave a great explainer. So if you go to The Pillar website, you can, you can check this out. And he's really explained the anointing that's going to happen tomorrow with King Charles and what it has to do with Zadok the priest. And what, by the way, what, what's, what's going to happen is... Um, is that there's going to be a procession, first of all. The Cross of Wales is coming in, which we talked about, with the, with the relics of the true cross. Then there's going to be an oath made by the king that will include a promise to maintain, quote, the Protestant Reformed religion established by law. And that's when King Henry VIII established the Anglican Church. Then the, the, the anointing is going to happen. The anointing is going to happen. And they're going to, they're going to sing this hymn, Veni Creator Spiritus, and... Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is going to get this coronation oil. And the oil comes from the Mount of Olives, actually. It's harvested from olive groves on the Mount of Olives in the Holy Land. And I didn't know this, but King Charles III's grandmother, Princess Alice of Battenberg, that's where she's buried, actually, on the Mount of Olives. I didn't know that. But the olives are pressed outside of Bethlehem. They season the oil with sesame, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, uh, amber, orange blossom, some other things I've never heard of, but it, it sounds pretty fragrant. It would be pretty uh, pretty high quality, obviously. It was consecrated in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre by the Anglican Archbishop and a Greek Orthodox Patriarch as well. So that, that's part of the ecumenical flavor here, too. A Greek Orthodox Patriarch had something to do with this uh, indirectly. And so, by the way, I didn't know this, but uh, Luke Coppin explained that the oil is also going to anoint Camilla, apparently the queen consort, the, the wife of uh, King Charles. And so that's going to happen in public. But 
with King Charles is anointed, it's not going to happen in public view. So what, this is what's going to happen. He's going to actually take off his robes, and he's going to be just dressed in normal, simple clothing. And the choir is going to sing Zadok the Priest from Handel. And then there's going to be this canopy, this screen that is set up, and it's going to be sort of like this tent, I guess, that's going to be set up around King Charles. And he's going to be seated on the coronation chair, and they've used this coronation chair since 1399. And this is the only time during the entire service that he's going to be in private. He's going to be all alone while the archbishop's going to be there too, I guess, maybe a couple other people. But the whole point of it is so that he might reflect on how God has called him to this place. And so this goes back to the Old Testament and the Middle Ages as well. Kings would travel underneath a canopy, protect them from the rain, that sort of thing. I don't know whether it's made of Gore-Tex or waterproof, but whatever. But the whole the whole point of it is it's kind of like the tent of meeting, if you will, in the book of Exodus. We, we did that on the Faith Explained show, went through that book. And this is the presence of God. That's, that's the whole idea here. And so there's going to be a gold flask shaped like an eagle, and it's going to pour the oil into a coronation spoon. The archbishop dips two fingers into the oil, and he will anoint the king on his hands, on his chest, and on his head. And this is exactly what happened with Elizabeth, too, back in 1953. And he's going to say, this is his, his prayer that he's going to pray, be your hands anointed with holy oil, be your breast anointed with holy oil, be your head anointed with holy oil, as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed. And as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so may you be anointed, blessed, and consecrated king over the peoples whom the Lord your God has given you to rule and govern in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's his anointing. And that's when he's going to sort of start this uh, service that he's going to have uh, to the people. And so that is not going to be seen on television. It's going to be completely in private. Uh, but I just told you about it. So now you know what's going to happen. How about that? And my thanks to Luke Coppin for filling in a lot of the details on that as well. So it's it's intriguing to think about this. Obviously, in the United States, uh, there's obviously been a separation from the British 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 monarch for quite some time since 1776. And I'm reading right now a really interesting book by the late David McCullough called 1776. It's all about that first year of the American Revolution. Incredible reading uh, for those of you who like history. So th this is this is the the background of it. And there's kind of this, I don't know, this, there's, there's a link with the other aspects of, of, of the UK, the coronation chair that I told you dates back to 1399. There's actually a block of stone under, the, under that seat. It's called the Stone of Destiny. And it used to be called the Stone of Scone because it came from Scotland. And I know a lot of people, I think about Sean Connery. I know he was all for Scottish independence. But that was supposed to represent the fact that he, he rules over all of what's now the United Kingdom. And he's going to be given a scepter, which is a, a symbol of authority on earth. And then he's also going to be given, Charles is going to be given an orb. You've probably seen these symbols of the monarchy. But the orb is actually a symbol of God's authority. This, this whole concept called the divine right of kings. You've probably heard about that. And this was interesting because when, when the American Revolution happened in 1776, it was kind of a reluctant break with, with the king. And you've probably seen Hamilton and King George the, the Third, who's kind of the bad guy in, in that play. 
Uh, it's really funny uh, the way that he's portrayed, obviously. But but Americans obviously had re- appealed to King George III for relief, and they they didn't necessarily want to break with this this concept of the king, but they felt that they had to. And so, as America kind of was creating this this new government, uh, this republic, and they're trying to figure out how to move through history without a king. Okay, we're going to have a president, and there's all this stuff that we're going to have that th- there wasn't necessarily th- anything in the American mind that said, oh, kings don't have a divine right. That, that kind of developed as, as things went on. And there was kind of a split uh, in, in the American mind. And, and this, this, this whole, I think there's a split in, in, in the British mind as well, because they, they kind of want there to be a, a blessing for the king. They kind of want him to have some majesty. They kind of want authority for him. But the fact of the matter is that most Brits are probably more secular than spiritual at this point, or they're into different types of spiritualities. And even King Charles himself, he might not really want the Christian trappings of all this. So it's, it's really, really intriguing uh, time to be alive and to see all this stuff happening uh, in the world. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Uh, interesting point, too, from, uh, from Holly Ordway, um, and she's a friend of the program. She's been on the show before, a great uh, scholar of Tolkien, done some great writing, a great convert to the faith. And she wrote a piece about uh, the coronation of King Charles III and what it really has to do with us in our vocation. And she talked about this, so this is on the Word on Fire blog, and she, when she was doing some research in Oxford, she was in England recently, kind of researching stuff for her book on Tolkien. Um, and at, at the time, Queen Elizabeth passed away, and she went to a requiem mass that was held at the Oxford Catholic Oratory, as well as one, she went to one at the parish of Our Lady of the Rosary. She thought, wow, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, she was the queen and she was the head of state, but they kind of prayed for her like she was just an ordinary Christian. Like this was just her vocation. Her, it, it wasn't her idea. She didn't go looking for this. She didn't apply for this job. Because of hereditary reasons, she's the queen. And uh, it wasn't necessarily the way it was supposed to go, that she thought it was going to go, but that is the way it, it did go. And she said, really, what, what everyone was doing was just praying for the soul of a fellow Christian. And we have our vocations as well. We have our vocations as well. And so this this is what we have to understand. She, she does a really interesting uh, job in this article of talking about how we, we live in this age of you know, people who fail, people who fall. Certainly, King Charles himself has had some very, very public uh, failings in the past and on the personal level, for sure. And But he's still there. And, he, and it doesn't take away the, the fact that he has to do this job. And it's not like cancel culture where they can just get rid of him. He, he's, he's there. And he's got to somehow live out this vocation, whether whether he likes it or not. This is his life. And so... We have to do that as well. We have to understand that we have been given this great vocation through our baptism and that our vocation is going to be different. Obviously, we're not ruling over England, but we do have a call because of our baptism. We're called to become saints. We're called for responsibility over our little section of the kingdom that God has entrusted us with, the people in our orbit, uh, the people that we have to help get to heaven and help them to take the next step in holiness as well, help make their lives better. 
And so we can say, I wish it was different. I wish I were someone else. No, that's not a good thing to wish because God has called you for a reason and he had you in mind from all eternity. And St. Paul talks about this from the creation of the world. We were destined to become saints in Christ Jesus. That was his plan for us. That's so that we might really reign with him. I'm talking about wearing a crown. We are going to share in his reign for all eternity if we stay faithful. And these crowns that, that are given to us of, of glory, we're just going to cast them down at his feet and, and say, we're sixpence none the richer. Everything we have is from you. We just lay it at your feet, Lord. And so lots of, lots of things that we can think about in terms of our own vocation, our own calling as we witness the coronation of King Charles tomorrow. All right, we're going to be back right after this on the Kale Clark Show, but we're going to ask a really interesting question about the USA, which is obviously the superpower in the world right now. I think there's really good reason to think that it's going to stay that way as well. And you might disagree. You might have your concerns, questions about that. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back on the Kale Clark Show. your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, you know, producer Jim, I was wondering if you're going to do that, play Kings of Leon because of King Charles's coronation, which we were just talking about, the secret biblical stuff behind it. Zadok the priest, the anointing, all that stuff, defender of the faith, actually a Catholic title that was given to King Henry VIII before he did a bad thing, and we talked about that before the break. If you missed it, if you missed any other programs, go to RelevantRadio.com, the Relevant Radio app, and you can download the show, and it's posted, and all the other programs that we had this week. We had a really fun week on the show. We had the week that was. Uh, that was also off the top of the show if you missed it, so uh, definitely check out the podcast on the Relevant Radio app. Well, obviously, this this whole talk of, of the King of England uh, really recalls the fact that England was the world superpower for so long and had such a controlling stake in the Commonwealth, so many countries all over the world. The empire was amazingly expansive, but now the United States of America is the world superpower. Will that change? Will that change? Some say yes, some say no. 888 Really curious to know what you might think about this. Do you see any potential threats uh, from the interior, the exterior, to United States dominance on the world stage? Well, there's an interesting tweet, uh, kind of a tweet thread that was put out by uh, a businessman who lives in San Antonio named Michael Girdley uh, on Twitter. And this, this, this tweet that he put out, this thread, has over 6 million views already. And so many hundreds of people are commenting on this. It's so intriguing. And, and honestly, it's an angle that I had never thought of before. And, and so he's an entrepreneur. And he said, look, I, I actually thought about moving out of the United States. Thought about moving to a different country, maybe, maybe Canada, maybe uh, somewhere else for various reasons. But he, he did his research and then he said, quote, I realized leaving is stupid. Because there's no chance the USA will stop being the global superpower, the global superpower, and the best country for opportunity. But the reason, he said, really surprised him. So what are the reasons? Well, okay, first of all, 
here, here are the usual arguments that people have for optimism about the USA's continued status on the world stage. Number one, it's a democracy. Number two, the rule of law, although it's not always followed, of course. The U.S. dollar, and there, there are people who have raised alarms about whether the U.S. dollar is going to maintain uh, dominance on the world stage. The strongest military in the world, aircraft carriers that can go anywhere. Although, one thing that he didn't really talk about and something that that I think about a lot, I, w I, wonder, I wonder how the American military is doing with hypersonic missiles. I'm sure they're developing their own. I'm sure that they're probably pretty well along. But I've, I've heard a lot about, and you have too, about how China's got hypersonic missiles. Russia's obviously got them as well. They tend to kind of nullify aircraft carriers in a certain sense. They could, they could wipe them out pretty quickly. So hopefully uh, the U.S. is working on those as well. Other strengths, immigration and entrepreneurial culture, many, many more. But the one thing that really struck Michael Girdley more than any other reason that will hopefully sustain the U.S. dominance on the world stage is geography. I don't know how strong you were in geography in school, but believe it or not, there's an absolutely magical combination of geographical factors that favors the United States over almost any other place in the world. So just, just to uh, put this in perspective for you, by the way, the U.S. economy is the only one in the world that's grown every decade for the last 150 years. Every decade, it keeps growing. So here's some reasons why, and they all have to do with geography. And this, this was something I had never thought about before, the Mississippi River system. And we all know about the Mississippi River, but... There are all these branches off the Mississippi that are all over the United States, and it's actually the largest naturally navigable waterway in the world by far. By far. I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually sail from the Gulf of Mexico. You can start today on Cinco de Mayo, and you can actually sail all the way to Minnesota. And we have a lot of relevant radio listeners in Minnesota, and you probably knew that. But... The reason why this is really important because of this system uh, stemming off of the Mississippi River is that when you're transporting stuff, like goods, you know, when you're shipping stuff, literally on a ship, if you can do it by water, it's 10 times to 30 times cheaper than any other mode of transportation. So it's kind of an unfair advantage almost. And because of this system, even a place like Pittsburgh has ocean access indirectly through the Mississippi River system. The second reason that's geographically key for the U.S. is prime farmland. So the Mississippi River system, if you were to, to overlay that on a map, it also happens to overlay some of the best farmland on planet Earth. It's an unbeatable, as Michael Girdley says, it's an unbeatable one-two punch. Because of this, the U.S. can deliver food more cheaply to markets than any other place. And it's actually the number one exporter of food in the world, the United States of America. Number two is Germany. But USA is number one. So that, that, that's an important factor as well, the farmland. The third factor is the Great Lakes, the largest freshwater lake system in the world. Now, obviously, the Great Lakes are shared with Canada, but everybody's connected to the Mississippi at Chicago. And uh, it's also connected to the Atlantic Ocean. So... That makes a lot of inland U.S. cities, it basically turns them into virtual seaports. Again, this is a big advantage on the world stage. There are also barrier islands. 
And, and the Mississippi connects with a, a really cool barrier island system. So along the coast of the U.S., there are all these little islands that create kind of like a coastal river where the waters are kind of calm. You can navigate them easier all the way from Texas to Rhode Island. Again, it's more low-cost water transport, so American goods can get to the market a lot cheaper. Okay, what about size? Well, this, the geographical size of the U.S., it's the fourth largest country in the world. Obviously, in terms of landmass, Russia's number one, then it's Canada, and then it's China, and then it's the United States. But that's still pretty big, still pretty big. And the quality of the land, though, is a lot is a lot better overall because, obviously, there are the vast majority of the Canadian popula population lives closer to the border with the U.S., and there are vast swaths of, of northern Canada. Really, there's not much farming going on there. Obviously, the land quality just isn't, isn't there. There's lots of great natural resources, but most of the American land is much more usable and arable. What about energy reserves? I didn't know this, but because there's so much talk about Saudi Arabia, but the United States is actually the number one oil producer in the world. Number one in the world and number 11 in worldwide reserves. So Russia's number two, Saudi Arabia is number three, Canada number four. Natural gas, number one in natural gas production. There's all this talk of the Nord Stream pipeline and you know people wanting the cheap natural gas from Russia and the Ukraine war and all, all that stuff. Who blew up the pipeline? But the, but the United States is actually number one in producing natural gas and number four in reserves, and that's not even factoring wind energy, solar energy. So there's tons of energy to be had in the United States. There are also natural ports, some of the best natural harbors in the world on the two biggest oceans in the world, the Atlantic and the Pacific. New York City, Chesapeake, Puget Sound, Los Angeles on the West Coast, San Francisco Bay, very well connected to the rest of the country by roads and rail. So that's really, really big because 99% of international trade by volume is done through ships, shipping containers, all that stuff. Large coastline, it's five times bigger than the coast of the coastline of Africa because Africa doesn't have, it's got few inlets, very large bays, but, but not as big in terms of coastline. It also has three times the amount of coastline of all of Europe. So again, if you, if you control the coastline, you can kind of control the ocean, the economic zone for shipping and all that stuff. And there are a few, there are a few other reasons. Ocean currents, we're on the right side of ocean currents. Um, protection from enemies, theoretically, at least by water. But again, hypersonic missiles might change the equation there. Uh, it, it, you, you, it's going to be very difficult to invade the United States from the north through Canada. And what, what about the south? It's Cinco de Mayo. One of the things that Michael Girdley says that it, it's going to be tough for, for Mexico to ever really rival the United States in certain respects because, yeah, there's some arable, farmable land that's in the middle of the country, but there's desert in the north, there's jungles in the south, has few good rivers for transport, lots of mountains and valleys that make it really, really difficult to integrate uh, the country. So really interesting geographical points. It's kind of the sweet spot in so many ways. The northern hemisphere, you, that's where you want to be. Bigger landmass, easier trade. Um, it's east-west. That, that's important as, in terms of north-south, because if you're kind of um, if you're if your continent, like say Africa, is kind of north-south, you gotta crops and certain animals can only live in, in certain types of climates. So you've almost got to jump uh, north quite a few bands or south quite a few bands uh, across the uh, 
the timelines in order to to grow and do certain things. But if you're east west, it's better, and that's why it's better for Asia because it's east west. It's better for North America as well. So that's kind of interesting. And he's basically saying, don't bet against America because it's got a lot of resources on its side, and geography is key among them. But a lot of people think, well, there's there are other dangerous factors for sure, and there always have been dangerous factors politically. Uh, the United States went through, obviously, the Civil War, which threatened to tear apart the, apart the country. So it's, it's it happened before. America's come through it. Warren Buffett always says, never bet against the United States. And he's having his big uh, powwow this weekend as well, the Oracle of Omaha, their big investors conference for Berkshire Hathaway. He and Charlie Munger, a couple of 90-year-old-plus guys holding court for thousands of people, 40,000 people, dispensing their wisdom. It's kind of an annual pilgrimage for a lot of people, so... A lot of stuff going on this weekend, uh, that's for sure. I'd love to hear what you thought about all the things that we've talked about today. You can email the program, kale at relevantradio.com, C-A-L-E at relevantradio.com. And don't forget, you can download all of our episodes on The Faith Explained Show, as well as The Kale Clark Show, by going to relevantradio.com, the Relevant Radio app, and dialing it in, sharing it with a friend. So you're definitely going to want to keep it locked in on Relevant Radio. Very, very special family rosary across America. Coming to you from Wisconsin tonight because the Walk to Mary, Champion Wisconsin, Our Lady of Champion Shrine, the new name uh, that was just bestowed upon it, uh, it, it's a big, big deal. So this is the 10th anniversary of the Walk to Mary. And they're hoping for, we are hoping for 10,000 pilgrims to be walking. So you can still show up, I think. I hope you can still show up and walk, and you can run maybe a little bit. Uh, but whatever you do, uh, try to pray for the event for sure. So Father Rocky and Drew uh, will be doing the family rosary across America, and Timmy's up next, of course, uh, right here on Relevant Radio. So keep it locked here. I also want to say, I also want to say, we got to pray for somebody else, Maggie Greshel. Uh, who will be having a different name because she's getting married tomorrow. I know producer Jim is going to the wedding, and that's going to take place uh, in beautiful downtown Chicago. So we really want to pray for Maggie, who's the co-host of Father Rocky for the Family Rosary Across America. And so a uh, big, big day for her, and God bless her and her new husband, Joe. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Kale Clark Show. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.